Well, if you have a church Bible, uh, we're going to be on page 1008, or in a large print, 1565. Uh, But if you're in your own Bible, I don't know your page number, but we're in Mark chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 14 down to verse 56. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 56. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a man called Kyle MacDonald, but he's quite famous for being a man who traded a red paperclip for a house. He was inspired by the game, uh, a childhood game called Bigger and Better, where you trade something uh, that you have for something that to you is bigger and better. And he didn't just do it all at once, one paper clip for one house, he did it over 14 trades. 14 times he traded up, starting with a paper clip, got something bigger and better, and in the 14th trade he got a house which uh, he used uh, with his new wife after they got married. He realised that he could have something bigger and better. And in today's passage, we see two feasts and two kings. The feast of King Herod and the feast of King Jesus. And we shall see that the feast of Jesus and the kingship of Jesus is bigger and better than what the worldly Herodian feast has to offer. Jesus is a bigger and better king, leader and provider than Herod. Or, for that matter, anyone else in the scriptures and anyone else in the world. And we come to this passage with having left the twelve disciples serving uh, Jesus, having been sent out by him, which is what Robert preached on last week. And in verses 12 and 13, we read that they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. They were sent out by the king with the authority of the king and the power of the king to teach, drive out demons, and to heal the sick. And the ministry of Jesus was being multiplied through his disciples. But notice in verse 14 that although it's the disciples doing the work, it's the name of Jesus that is being made known. And by the way, just as an aside, any ministry worth anything makes the name of Jesus known, not the name of the person doing the ministry. All ministry should be to proclaim and make the name of Jesus known, not the name of yourself. And verse 14 tells us, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. The fact that King Herod is called a king here is likely to be a bit of a mockery by Mark. This Herod was not Herod the Great, who we met in Matthew uh, chapter 2, who massacred uh, the children. This was one of his many sons, Herod Antipas. And when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split between four of his sons, and they each became known, or each became uh, tetrarchs, 
not kings. He was not known as a king Herod, but as the Tetrarch Herod. And Tetrarch literally means a ruler of a fourth. So he did not really hold the title of king, and he didn't really have the power of a king, because everything that he had, all his authority, all of his land, even his palaces, were really under the authority of Rome. He was almost like a tenant in his own land. He didn't own it, and he had to do as he was told. And when Herod heard about what the disciples were doing, he was worried, it says. Look at the end of verse 14 and into verse 16. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Well, people were trying to work out what was going on with these disciples of Jesus. And they had lots of opinions about Jesus, just like today. Not everyone recognized him as God. Herod, though, saw what was happening and was greatly concerned because he thought that John the Baptist might be risen from the dead. And he had beheaded him, as we shall see. And he has a mixture of emotions, probably. There was perhaps guilt, because we'll see that John the Baptist was an innocent man. Perhaps he was anxious at some kind of uprising that would have taken place by people following a resurrected John the Baptist. Perhaps there was embarrassment. He couldn't even kill someone after chopping off his head. And perhaps there was fear over what his wife would say, which we shall see in a minute was a fear that was justified. Well, why would Herod feel feelings perhaps of guilt or anxiety, embarrassment or fear? Well, we have a flashback in verses 17 to 29 of what happened to John the Baptist. And we see King Herod and a worldly feast. Let's look at this passage together. I'm going to read verses 17 to 29. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested... And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Well, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. Because of his, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head 
And the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Pretty gruesome, pretty horrible feast, pretty awful king. And Herod himself had ordered John to be arrested. And he ordered John to be put in prison. And he did this, it says, because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who he married. Now, I've got on the other sheets that I've given you to take home with you a bit of a family history, so I'm not going to go into it all here. Uh, Just to say that this was a web of incestuous intermarriage, which is both disgusting and complex. But Philip's, uh, a few things, Philip's wife was also his niece, Herodias. And when Herod visited his brother Philip in Rome, he was seduced by Herodias, who obviously was also his niece, and she persuaded him to divorce his wife that he already had and marry her. And this caused all sorts of political problems as well as being just wrong. A wrong, adulterous and incestuous relationship. And John the Baptist had been publicly preaching against this. When verse 18 uh, tells us that he'd been saying it, it means that this is, it was, the verb is a continual one. He had kept on saying it. So publicly where he went, he was publicly uh, saying that this was an awful thing. When John would have gone to see him in prison, he would have kept on telling John, this is wrong. Herod is wrong. Herodias is wrong. This relationship is not right. And this particularly upset Herodias, who nursed a grudge against him to the extent of wanting him killed. And Herod showed himself, in the end, to being a weak king, in giving in to the demands and falling into the trap of a vengeful wife. But he was not only a weak king, he was an immoral king, an immoral king in marrying his sister-in-law and niece. He was a fearful king. He did not have John killed, it says, because he feared him, partly because of his following, but also because of his innocence. It tells us that um, Herod saw John as a righteous and holy man. But although he saw John as righteous and holy, it says he didn't understand his message, but he liked to hear him. He enjoyed listening to him, but he was puzzled. It's like um, when someone comes to me after a service sometimes and says, that was nice, and we've been talking about hell or something like that. They might like to hear um, my voice for whatever reason that may be, but they don't understand don't understand the message. And that was the problem here. He liked to hear John, but he didn't understand. He was puzzled. And all of the characters in this story, with the exception of John, are both cruel and vile, none more so than Herodias herself. And she got the opportunity for her revenge on John the Baptist at this banquet that Herod put on for his birthday. And I want us to notice some things about this feast. We've seen the king... A fearful, immoral, weak king. But let's look at his feast. First of all, notice the guests at this feast in verse 21. The guests were high officials, 
They would be the, the senior administrators in, in the government or the country. Military commanders would have been the top brass in the military. And the leading men of Galilee would have been the landowners of wealth and importance. Only the best people, only the most important, the high and mighty in society, were invited to the feast of King Herod. Notice in verse 22 the depravity. The daughter of Herodias danced. In verse 22, by the way, this daughter is described as a girl. The same word used uh, in, the, in a previous passage when talking about Jairus' daughter. This was a young teenager at the most. And her mother sends this teenager out to dance in front of men. And don't make any mistake, this kind was a, a sexual provocative dance that would have pleased Herod, her stepfather, and his dinner guests. This was disgusting. This was awful. She would have been dancing in front of men who were drunk, no doubt, sent out by her mother. What kind of mother would send out her child to do this? Notice the boasting at the end of verse 22 and verse 23. Ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you, he says. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And in fact, he didn't really have anything to give her. Everything was really Rome's. But his boasting was there in saying, you can have anything you want and I'll give it to you. But I want you two to notice the hate. In verses 24 and 25, this girl goes straight to her mother. And Herodias doesn't even have to think about what she wants. She wants the head of John the Baptist right now. This has been planned. She's had this planned out in her mind. I want it right now, the head of John the Baptist, immediately, without delay. You know, if, if, I, if she's offered half of his kingdom, imagine what she could have asked for. But she asked for the head of a man who's in prison, who hasn't even done anything wrong. Such hate. And furthermore, we see this hate in the fact she was willing to allow this girl to go back to Herod and ask for the head. And notice how how gross this is. She asked for this head and, and this girl is given a severed head on a platter to take back to her mother. Her mother not only allows her to do this dance, but allows her to take a head severed off of a man back to her mother. She cared not for her daughter. She was, her daughter was just another pawn to be played in this hate-filled game. And then notice the cowardice. Notice the cowardice. Herod is the classic people-pleaser here. A complete and utter coward. A coward, by the way, is somebody who compromises what is right to save face. Someone who compromises what is right to save face. And he's a complete coward. Look here, he was, it says he was greatly distressed. He was distressed because he feared John. He didn't want him killed. He'd stopped him being killed before. But now, he's got a choice to make. I can do 
what I know is right, but I'm going to look foolish in front of all my dinner guests. All these high and mighty people are here, and, and I'm going to look foolish if I do what's right. But if I do what I know is wrong, I'll look fine and good in front of all these people. He was a people pleaser. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist. He was distressed, but he did it because he was a coward. He beheaded an innocent man to show off to his dinner guests. And sometimes the cruelest people are just cowards, aren't they? Just cowards. And in the end, notice the tragedy in verse 29. John the Baptist, one of the greatest men of God, was just, his body would have been discarded and his disciples picked it up and placed it in a tomb. A tragic end for such a great man. This is the worldly feast of a cowardly king. Well, who wants to be part of this feast? How many of you would want to be part of this? Well, I'm sure most of you would say, no, of course not. This is disgusting. This is, this is horrible. I would never want to be part of this. But sometimes, sometimes we attend this, don't we? Let's look at it again and apply it to our own hearts. Well, Herod was hanging out with the, the high and mighty. How many of you only ever hang out with people that you like? Maybe for some of you here as Christians, how many of you only spend time with other Christians because you don't want to spend time with people that aren't believers? It's good to spend time together, but we shouldn't avoid people that are different to us. Look at the dancing girl. As horrible as it is that her mother uh, sent her out, we don't read of any uh, argument about it. And today we see often uh, people dressing in, in provocative ways. And I would encourage our teenagers not to be posting things on Facebook where you're dressed in a way just to please men. It's dangerous. We shouldn't be doing things like that. For, for, but for, uh, for the men here, and not even just the men, how many of us a part of that crowd, watching the girl dancing. I'm not just talking about pornography or anything like that, just things on the TV with, with, with all sorts of sexual elements to it, isn't there? Innuendo, jokes, inappropriate uh, dress and all sorts of things. We watch this depravity, don't we, oftentimes? We attend that feast. We think that that is good. What about the hate and the revenge. How often do you think that you'll be satisfied if you get one over someone else at work or even in church? We can react badly when someone points out a fault in our own life and tells us we've done wrong and we can try and make them look bad. Or we can point out the fault in their life, not because we're any concern, really concerned about them, but because we want to get one back on them. And how many of us are people pleasers, finding such satisfaction in the praise of others and approval of others at the expense of doing what is right, going places where we shouldn't go, watching things we shouldn't watch, involving ourselves in conversations that are ungodly in order to please other people. It's easy to please others. It's not always easy to obey God, is it? And how many of us even allow others to be treated badly 
in order for us to save face. You see, we, we look at this feast and think it's awful. But so often we go to this restaurant, don't we? It looks sumptuous. It looks fun. It looks so much better initially than the five loaves and two fish that we'll see in a minute. But the taste never lasts. The hunger always returns quickly. And there is no real satisfaction in the feast of the world. And if we have not come to Jesus Christ as our saviour and as our king, it ends in tragedy just like this feast. It leads to death and hell. So let's look at something eternally bigger and better. The second feast and the second king. King Jesus and the heavenly banquet. In verse 30, we come back from this flashback that, that was on, focused on King Herod. The apostles have been on their mission, and in verse 30 it says, They gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. The disciples were tired and busy. Their ministry was was popular. They didn't even get a chance to eat. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there. I've been so busy, haven't even had a chance to eat. And it's wonderful after that to have a time of rest, and for me certainly to have a time of food. So Jesus took them aside, and they went to a solitary place. And in this solitary place, there is another feast of an altogether different kind of king. A feast and a king that is bigger and better than what we have just seen. Let's read the account of this feast in verses 33 to 44. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it is already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves And he gave it to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Everything about this feast may outwardly look less and poorer than King Herod's. But in reality, we'll see that it is bigger and better. We see that Jesus is a bigger and better leader and king than King Herod. 
We see Jesus couldn't escape the crowds here. They came to a solitary place to rest, but the people who saw them leaving on the boat ran on foot to go to where they were going ahead of them. So when Jesus arrives, the crowd are already there. Now, picture the scene, because you know how this feels. If you have, well, you just know how this feels. You sit down to watch something on the TV, and the phone rings. I've just sat down. Or uh, the children call. Every, Every time we go to watch a film, I can't sleep. Oh, I need the toilet. It happens every single time. It's so annoying. (laughs) Or you arrive home after a busy day at work and the in-laws are around again. How annoying. You know what I mean. But Jesus here doesn't get annoyed. They hadn't eaten all day. They were busy in ministry. They'd gone to a place to rest. But what does Jesus do? It says in verse 34 that he has compassion on them. Why does he have compassion? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now in in the whole of this passage there is a a whole lot of Old Testament uh, references and passages which we can't go into everything which is why I've done the extra sheets. But just to say this, in the Old Testament this phrase uh, sheep without a shepherd occurs often. It occurs often describing the state of God's people. They had leaders that were raised up Some were good. Often, though, the people were like sheep without a shepherd. The leaders were bad. And you can read about that on the sheets. And Jesus, in John's Gospel, declares himself as the good shepherd. He is a better leader than Herod. He's a better leader than all of the ones in the Old Testament. And he's a better leader and king than anyone you can follow ever since, even today. And here he is in verse 34, teaching his sheep many things. And in verse 35, it was late in the day. The disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. Now, there wasn't a supermarket nearby. Uh, Tesco's wasn't invented in the Roman Empire. And they, they, they couldn't just grab something. It was a remote place. Now, those of you that know me know that I plan my whole day around food. And in fact, I don't wait till I get hungry before I figure out what I'm going to eat. I'll cook while I'm not hungry so that I know when I am hungry, the food is there. My day is planned around food. If I have guests coming to stay, their day is planned around food. Because my day is planned around food, we have to eat. I love to eat. And I get irritable sometimes if I don't eat. So if I ever do fasting, I have to go into a solitary place. And here it was getting late. And the disciples were feeling a bit like I feel when I'm hungry. And it seems here at first that they have this concern, doesn't it? Well, they, they, they must be hungry. They must be, go get something to eat. But really, there was an element of them being concerned for their own stomachs too. So they weren't going to be impressed by what Jesus said in verse 37. You give them something to eat. And you can see the sarcasm in their response, can't you? They said to him, well, that would be more than half a year's wages, Jesus. Are we going to go and and spend that much money that we don't have and we couldn't get? You know, Jesus, we've we've left our livelihoods behind. We don't even have any money. And if we did, are we going to spend it all on bread for, for these people? 
But of course, Jesus is teaching them a lesson. You know, the disciples were right about one thing. They couldn't give the people the food. There was nothing they could do. Only Jesus can provide for his sheep. In the banquet of King Jesus, he does the catering. And as well as teaching them a lesson, Jesus tested their faith. When Jesus asked what they did have, they found out, and all they could find was five loaves and two fish. And the loaves here, by the way, we're not, we always think, when we say loaves, I always think of like a loaf of hovis, and you think, well, who in their right mind brings five loaves of hovis as a packed lunch? Um, you know, it just doesn't happen. But they weren't loaves like that. They were like crackers and two small fish. The fish was probably like pickled um, that would go on these crackers. It was the small pat lunch of a small boy, as we see in other gospel accounts. You see, the banquet of King Jesus externally doesn't look much, does it? And if you think about it, when we're invited to come to Jesus, it doesn't look much to be invited to, does it? If you think about it, we're called to a narrow way to take up a cross, which is suffering, isn't it? To give all we have to the Lord, to sacrifice, to die to self. Compared to the self-indulgence of King Herod and his feast, perhaps it doesn't sound appealing. And what do we offer Jesus? What do we bring to the feast? Usually when you go for a meal, you might bring something with you, but, but we can't really bring much ourselves. When you think about the God of the universe, what, what, what could he need from us? But Jesus does use what we bring. I mean, he does use who brings it, and he performs a miracle. Look again at what happens. Verse 39 tells us that he organized the people in groups, and they sat on the grass of, in groups of hundreds and fifties, and he took the five loaves, and he gave thanks, and he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. So the bread kept on giving, More and more. And the same thing happens with the fish. It would have been amazing to see. And the most important thing of this feast that I want us to see is in verse 42. Just six words. And they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate is the first thing. Awesome power, isn't it? There were 5,000 men in verse 44 and they all ate. But Matthew's account tells us that there were also women and children. So there could have been around 25,000 people at the feast of King Jesus. And he fed them all. Everyone was fed. And they were all satisfied. Now the the word satisfy here, I don't think it, I think we have the wrong idea of what this, this word means. When I say if I come to your house and I have, have dinner and I say, yeah, I'm satisfied, you probably think, really? It, it's, it doesn't mean just enough, I filled a gap, and it doesn't mean it tasted all right. This word satisfied means they were full, they had had completely enough food, and it means it would have tasted amazing. And I, I was saying to Paula when I was going through the message with her, she, Paula doesn't eat fish. But, you know, this fish was like uncursed fish. It was from heaven. And I said, if you don't like fish, you would like this fish. This fish is good fish. They were satisfied. It tasted good. And then what is more, that it says there were 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish for the disciples. Now, again, 
the basketfuls here, we think of a basket and we think of something big. And there's two words for basketfuls in Mark's Gospel. One is when he feeds the 4,000, and those baskets are big baskets that you can fit a man in. But these baskets is a different Greek word, and it's a lunchbox. So each disciple was given a lunchbox, and they had enough. So Jesus fed all the people so they were satisfied, including those 12 disciples who went round and were taught this wonderful lesson. Each one went round with their lunchbox, and they had enough for themselves as well. Jesus provided with power, with precision, perfectly. What a wonderful miracle that Jesus did here. But something strange happens in verse 45. Immediately, it says, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And immediately means straight after the miracle. And the phrase Jesus made his disciples get in the boat is literally he forced them in. They were forced. They, they wanted to stay. But immediately he fed them and he went. He sent his disciples immediately, forced them in the boat to go to the other side. And, and he went to pray. Now this seems strange. Well, this is where we need another gospel to fill in a little bit here. John's gospel tells us in chapter 6 that the crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force. They wanted to make him king. They'd seen this miracle, and it was an amazing miracle. In fact, it's the only one that's in all four gospels. And they wanted to make him king by force. So it was a temptation for Jesus to be being made king by a popular crowd was easier than to establish a kingdom through suffering and death, which is what he did. And in these times of crisis, when you read as well that he went to a solitary place, it's a temptation for Christ. So he forced his disciples away. He went on the mountainside to pray because he didn't want to be forced to be king in a way that was not honouring to his father. What a bigger and better king Jesus is. Whereas Herod was desperate to be called a king, but wasn't, Jesus escaped, so he wouldn't be made one, even though he is one. Whereas Herod was proud and cowardly, King Jesus is humble and teaches the truth. Whereas Herod killed a man who disturbed his depravity, King Jesus has compassion on the crowds disturbing his time out. And what a bigger and better feast Herod's feast was for the high and mighty. Jesus' feast is open to all who would come. Thousands and thousands. Herod's feast was depraved and immoral, where the people weren't satisfied because they, had, they couldn't stop. It kept on going. They needed more depravity. But Jesus' feast was holy and completely satisfying. Herod's feast leads to death, and Jesus' feast leads to life. So which banquet are you going to come to? I invite you to come to the banquet of King Jesus. Come and have sins forgiven. Come and have peace with God. Come to the feast of King Jesus. And if you are dining out at King Herod's joint, I beg you to come to the king and the feast that brings life and bring satisfaction. Would you come? Would you come to the feast of King Jesus? And brothers and sisters, why do you think, why do I sometimes think, because I struggle with this too, 
that I'll be more satisfied at the feast of King Herod. Why do we think that? You know that you're going to come away hungry from there. You know it will not satisfy. Brothers and sisters, spend time with your king at his table. Talk to him in prayer. I wonder when was the last time you had a really good conversation with King Jesus at his table in his throne room? Feast on his word, devour it, savour it. May, may time with him be the first thought on your mind when you get up. Dine with Jesus for breakfast. May you know that you'll be satisfied only in him. Satan will tell you that the Herod feast is better. And he'll try and keep you away from feasting with Jesus. There's hundreds of things that he will tell you is better than being with Jesus. But only Jesus can satisfy our hunger. Stop dining out on junk when you can be having a heavenly banquet with your king. And why is it better? Because of who the king is. Who is King Jesus? Well, he sent the disciples to Bethsaida in the middle of the night when they were still in the middle of the lake. And it was at this time that something amazing happened that showed the identity of King Jesus. So let's look at it in verses 47 to 56. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gesineret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick on in the market, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The disciples here have left this feast, and it's the middle of the night. And in the middle of the night, they were in the middle of the lake. They were not at the other side where they were sent. And it says they were straining at the oars. But Jesus saw them. He was alone on the land, they were straining at the oars, but he saw them and he came to them. And they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was going to pass by them, and they thought he was a ghost. And you can imagine why they thought this. If you saw uh, something that looked like a man walking on water, a man walking on water still wouldn't be your first thought, would it? You'd try and think of anything, and they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out because they were terrified. But Jesus calms their fears. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And there's amazing, amazing truth here. And again, a lot of this is from the Old Testament. But the first thing I want us to notice, who is this king? When the Bible says here, uh, take courage, it, it is I, it literally is, take courage, it is I am. The Greek is ergo emi, ergo emi, and that is who King Jesus 
is. This was the name given to Moses when he said, who am I going to tell people, God, that you are? He says, tell them I am has sent you. It's the name of God. It's the name that the Pharisees almost uh, were going to stone Jesus. They were going to stone Jesus to death when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He used that name for himself and they were going to stone him. So what Jesus is saying, take courage. God is here. He is not the nationalistic king that was expected by the crowds at the feast. This is God on earth. And all through this passage, we see Jesus showing who he is here. Have you ever noticed how uh, Jesus was on the land and they were in the middle of the lake and it was night? How did Jesus see them? Well, we see um, uh, one psalm you could read, which we're not going to, is Psalm 139, which tells us about God being all-seeing. It even says that he sees them on the sea. Only God can see from the land to the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. Jesus is ergo emi. In the Old Testament, God is often described as walking on water. Job, uh, let me just read one uh, example. Job chapter 9, verse 8. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus is ergo emi. And then it says he passes by them. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus was trying to work out whether he should go in the boat or whether he should pass them by. It doesn't mean that the disciples, you know, is he going to go or is he going to stay? Again, this is a reference to God. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, Moses said to God when he was on the Mount Sinai, now show me your glory. And God, it says, caused his glory. He put Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covered his face And it says he passed by him. He's the God who passes by. And in verse 48, Jesus was about to pass by them in this same way, as the glorious God. Jesus is ego emi. And as only God can do, he climbed into the boat and he brought calm to the wind. As he did before, by the way, when he calmed the storm. You see, Jesus wasn't in the boat. If he was in the boat, I'm sure they wouldn't have been so fearful. And afterwards, he continues to show his identity with all of the healings, which are not even exceptional in this gospel, are they? It happens all the time. Jesus is ergo emi. And there is just such wonderful application here. I've been able to use this when I've seen people this week to encourage them. Because here is the application. You know, in the Old Testament, by the way, another thing God often says is, do not be afraid, I am with you. He says that oftentimes, doesn't he? And he's saying the same thing here. Those who are at the feast of King Jesus are not only satisfied, they are safe. They are not only satisfied, they are safe. You see, it's Jesus that puts us in the boat of our Christian lives. And he tells us to go to the other side. We go to heaven, don't we? But in the meantime, I don't know how many of you strain at the oars. How often do we strain at the oars? I I know, I I sometimes feel like I'm straining at the oars. It's hard 
to get to the other side. But Jesus sees you. He sees you from afar, straining at the oars. And he comes to you in his glory by his spirit. And he says to you, take courage, ego emi. He sees you, he comes to you, and he says, take courage, it is ego emi. God knows. He sees your struggle with sin. He sees your marriage and family troubles. He sees your health problems. He sees your financial woes. He sees the stress that you have at work. He sees your grief and your loneliness. And he says, take courage. It is ego emi. I am. God is with you. And he comes in the boat alongside. And he brings calm and he brings peace. But how did the disciples respond to this obvious revelation of who Jesus is? Well, it says they were completely amazed which you would be. But amazement is not the same thing as faith here. They didn't respond with belief in who Jesus was. If they knew who Jesus was, this would not have been so shocking. Now, it's right that we should be amazed at God, because God is amazing. But we should not be surprised at him and not expect him to do great things. That is sin. And that is the problem they had here. They had weak faith. As they were straining at the oars, they had weak faith. When we are straining at the oars, we need to trust in ego emi, in Jesus. And this weakness and amazement is explained in verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They did not understand about the loaves. Now, they would have seen, uh, by the way, the Old Testament comparisons. They would have seen, ah, Jesus is uh, bread from heaven. Yeah, we we get that. That That was Moses. In fact, they would have seen that when Jesus fed people with bread, it was like Elisha in Two Kings. And you can, if you want, you can, again, read about that in another sheet of paper. But they didn't see that Jesus was a bigger and better than both Moses, Elisha, and anybody else. It's a bit like when, um, when you go into a, like, Toys R Us, and, and you see in Toys R Us uh, a lovely boat with animals poking their heads out. You think of Noah's Ark, don't you? But you don't understand that that story is judgment, isn't it? God is judging the world for sin and showing that Jesus is is, is the way. We we, we get it, but we don't don't understand it. We, We make the link back, but we don't understand what it means. And that's the thing here. They didn't understand that the king of the feast is the God of the universe. They didn't understand the king of the feast is the God of the universe. Their faith was weak. And they didn't trust in ego, me. And we are all, um, uh, sorry, we are, we are when, when, when we're at the feast of the king, we are at the feast of the God of the universe. This is God. This is the, the one that, that created the heavens and the earth. And I ask you, do you understand about the loaves? About the walking on the water? Do you get it? Do you get who this is? This is ego emi. The host of the feast is the God of the universe. Why do we think 
that we would be satisfied and we would be safe anywhere else but in his boat where he sees us, where he comes to us and where he helps us. The feast of our God and King may not look much now, but it's a feast that lasts forever, for eternity. We need to have a bigger vision. We need to stop looking and thinking, well, this is just five loaves and and two fish, and, and Herod is offering us all of this. No, Jesus takes those five loaves and two fish, something that doesn't look much and gives us complete satisfaction. And King Jesus will use the small things we give him and make them into great things for his glory that we will feast on forever. So I close with this question to you. Where are you feasting and who are you feasting with? Are you feasting at the table of Herod where you will always be hungry or are you finding your satisfaction in Christ at the feast of the king? We're going to close with... um, Uh, a song in response to this, Be Thou My Vision. I just want to read some words from this song. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. That's what Herod wanted, wasn't it? Riches and praise. To God this is, Be mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, the first in my heart. Nothing else but Christ High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. So let's stand together. Let's sing to the King of our feast, King Jesus, the God of the universe. Let's stand together.